All right, Isaiah 66, uh, verses 5 and 6. Let's begin reading there. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord, who fully repays his enemies. For centuries, Christians have been the targets of mockers, scoffers, deriders, and those who simply turn their noses up at people who confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, which we know to be the only way to the Father. Now, I, I mention it that way because mockers, the word mocker or scoffer, derider, uh, in the Greek or in the Hebrew, uh, literally means to turn your nose up at. And, and so that's what we receive as, as believers in Jesus Christ from, from the world. Warnings abound in the Word of God that mockers and scoffers would be prevalent in the last days. In Jude, uh, uh, just a one-chapter book, but in verses 14 through 19, it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What word came out to you? What, what word stuck out as you read that? Ungodly. And then he goes on in verse 16 and says, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. And then the Apostle Peter himself would also warn of these deriders of the truth, these mockers of the Word of God. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your mind, your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing this first. Notice that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now Paul also mentions other characteristic flaws of these mockers. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, he writes to Timothy and says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And notice, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. Notice, slanderers. Now that word is connected to the, the words mocker or, or uh, deriders or scoffers. 
But it is a different Greek word. It is the word diabolos, from which we get the word devil. Diabolos, slanders. Without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What is interesting is that these passages that I just read to you reflect the fact that those who mock and slander and deride believers and the truth of Jesus Christ are supposedly members of the same believing community. Let me finish reading through verse 5 of Paul's passage here in 2 Timothy, verse 3. Verse 5 says, having a form of godliness. Do you see that? Having a form of godliness, but denying its power from such people, turn away. If you go back to the book of Jude, or the letter of Jude, that one chapter letter uh, right before the book of Revelation... You go back to verse 4, and it says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Crept in where? Crept into the church. When Peter was talking about those who were saying, Where's the promise of His coming? He wasn't talking about people in the world. He was talking about people who had come into the church. So with that in mind, we began our study last week of the final chapter of Isaiah's prophecy with a warning of judgment along with a promise of God's continued goodness and a view to a hopeful future for Israel and all of God's people. We were shown in word pictures the greatness of our Lord and the proper response that man is to have towards such an awesome God. What response is that? One who is poor and contrite of heart. Go back to verse 2 and read that. That's the response. On him, it says, But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. And we saw how God feels about religion without righteousness. In other words, worship without a heart for God. Worship without a heart for God. Now people who come into the church say, Well, I've come to join you in worshiping God. But if they don't come into the church with that heart to honor God, with a heart that says, I am poor and needy, and I need to bow to the one who is great and awesome and has everything that I need for life and godliness, if I can't bow down, but if I come in proud and boastful and all, then, you know, our antenna should go up, a red flag should go up. And we should realize there's a problem here. Well, there was a problem in Israel. That problem existed. There was a remnant of true believers, but there were a lot of people who worshiped God outwardly, but not from the heart. And so the next passage here reveals how those who have a shallow, empty religion mock those who have genuine faith. And it is my desire that each and every one of you would have a true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ and in God's Word. So here it is, verse 5. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His Word. You see, God is speaking to those who do tremble, who bow to the Word. He says, listen, your brethren who hated you. In other words, those who stood next to you. Notice that He calls them brethren. 
He says, your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake. In other words, those who loved God, they loved Hashem. Hashem is the name of God. And they stood upon the name of God, but their brethren hated them. Isn't it interesting, and I just find, I'm going to go on here in, in just a moment, but isn't it interesting that we as Christians, we have Bibles, we walk around with Bibles, we go to churches, you know, with our Bibles. Sometimes we might be invited to a church, we go in with our Bible, nobody else has one. And I've even heard sometimes that even in churches that don't look to God's Word, but they're churches, they say, oh, you must be one of those Bible believers. Well, what are you? What do you believe in? I believe in God's Word. So, you know, this is, this is something that is, that is hitting us even in our day and time. With all of these new movements coming along, the emerging church and these, these ideas that come and say, well, we're in a postmodern society. And, you know, we have to start thinking like postmoderns, which means we don't really know if anything is absolute anymore. And I would ask them, do you believe that absolutely? Because if you do, then you've just broken what you believe. Because you don't know what you believe. But we know what we believe. Because God has given us His Word. And we believe it by faith. We trust Him. And God has proven Himself time and time again to be God and alone God. And the one to be honored, glorified, worshipped and praised. All right, I got to go on, see? So you got the understanding. There can be some today who look at us and say, oh, you guys are fundamentalists. You guys are, you know, well, I guess fundamentalist means that you're weird because you actually believe God and you believe His Word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, oh, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord, who fully repays his enemies. In other words, God is going to judge those who say they're believers but are not. Vain and useless religion will always hate true and genuine faith with empty acts in God's name and by mocking the remnant of believers with spiritually deceptive words. In other words, they sound good. But they really are dangerous. Consider this. Consider just what has been said here. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. This reminds me of Saul of Tarsus. Doesn't it remind you of Saul? Here's a man who was dedicated to his Jewish religion. He was dedicated to the law. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, he calls himself blameless at one point in time in his life. But before the Lord stopped him in his tracks on the road to Damascus, Paul thought that he was glorifying God by arresting Christians. He honestly thought that he was glorifying his God by bringing Christians in and having some executed. Now, Paul was sincere. But he was sincerely wrong. He was zealous, but his zeal was misdirected. And so it was and shall be for those false worshipers who mock God's people. And thank God 
that Paul, uh, that Saul of Tarsus was knocked down on the road to Damascus and heard the voice of God say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What do you answer? When all your life you've been thinking you've been serving the Lord, but you've only been serving your own interests. They shall be ashamed, the text says. In other words, their empty, scoffing religion is never going to have the victory. Judgment is pronounced against those whose worship is unacceptable or rejected. Let me give you a list of things. First of all, they didn't respond to God's call for repentance. They did not respond to God's call for repentance. Go back to verse 4. So will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. So first of all, they didn't respond to God's call of repentance. Secondly, they deliberately engaged in false worship, which we just read again there in verse 4. They deliberately engaged in false worship, committing evil before God's very eyes, even while the Lord was calling on them to repent. And then thirdly, they persecuted true worshipers, those who did tremble at God's word. And as a result of their terrible sin, God's hand of judgment will fall upon them. They will be utterly ashamed. They, uh, they will suffer God's vengeance. And without warning, an uproar, uh, an uproar will arise in the city of Jerusalem. This is now verse 5. So without warning, an uproar will arise in the city of Jerusalem and from the temple itself, the commotion and the turmoil coming from the sound of the battle when the Lord destroys His enemies, those false worshipers. And I should say that that's verse 6. So it's important then to note that the prophecy is applicable to every generation. Listen carefully. The prophecy that we're reading is applicable to every generation. In other words, it affects the near and the far fulfillments. See, if you've been with us for these last two years that we've been studying through the book of Isaiah, you realize that the, the prophecies affect you know, those that Isaiah was speaking directly to. In other words, the, the children of Judah that were being disobedient to God and were eventually going to be sent into captivity in Babylon. But those prophecies, that was just uh, you know, a, a foretaste of what was really to come, which is in the end time, when Messiah will come, that these prophecies will completely and ultimately be fulfilled. So, consider that it was fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. and to the Romans in A.D. 70. What do I mean by that? Well, where is the Babylonian Empire today? You see, they came down on Israel. They judged them because God brought them to judgment, but at the same time, the way they treated them, the way they treated the Jews, they got it. Same with the Romans. We're talking about the Roman Empire. 
So it will also be fulfilled when the Lord returns at His coming, at His second coming. In that day, all the false worshippers and the wicked of this earth will suffer the hand of God's judgment. And by the way, it isn't just the Babylonians, it wasn't just the Romans. The Jews were suffering because of that attitude of false worship, or those actions of false worship, and the attitude of saying, I serve God, but I really don't. I act like it on the outside, but on the inside I don't. And, and I want you to turn, if you will, at this point to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Because even Paul speaks of this kind of judgment and speaks of this particular time of judgment. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 7 says, To give you who are troubled rest. Now, if we were to relay that all the way back to... Uh, the remnant of, of Israel, then that's what God was concerned about. Those who were true believers, God wanted them to have His rest. But notice, it is to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, the same applies in the generation of the church. The same thing applies in the generation of, of those who say they're believers in Jesus Christ, but are not. And again, I have to remind you of that difference between true Christianity and what is called today Christendom. Because there are many sects or denominations or religious beliefs within Christianity or within the idea of Christianity that look to uh, Jesus Christ but in many cases do not believe that he is indeed uh, uh, from the Father or that, that he is indeed who, uh, who he says he is or they teach also that, that uh, he didn't have a virgin birth or that he didn't really rise from the dead now is that Christianity? But see, this is all incorporated in what is called Christendom. There are people who, you know, for, for, for whatever it's worth, you know, they wear their robes or they got their jewelry or they got their, you know, their necklaces and they got their big crosses, you know, and everything. They got their hats and they got all kinds of stuff. But they have a theology that doesn't recognize Jesus and Him alone as the only way to the Father. It's got to be Jesus and our traditions. It's got to be Jesus and our way of doing things. So that's Christendom. True Christianity believes every word that God has given us about Jesus Christ and stands upon the fact that He rose from the dead and we have the promise of eternal life because of it. If we believe in Him, And so verse 9 then, it says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now it is at this, at this point that I, I, you know, I join with Paul and say, Look, Paul, I, I want to join you in this. I, I want to believe that people are listening to us and believing what we believe. 
about believing in Jesus Christ and about standing on His Word and having that testimony of faith in Christ. But if you'll notice there, that almost sounds Old Testament, doesn't it? Coming with fire and vengeance, everlasting destruction. But you see, all along we've known this. All along we've heard what even Jesus himself said. In his first coming, he refers to it in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And yet Jesus will talk about the fact that when the Son of Man comes again, he comes now to judge the living and the dead as is appearing. In both cases, Jesus is going to be fulfilling all of his promises. And can you imagine the length of time that he's given for people to repent, for people to come to Christ, for people to come to the knowledge of the truth, for people to receive and accept the truth, for people to believe and trust in Jesus? 2,000 years. The age of grace. Will that day come to an end? There comes a time when Jesus will come. And all accounts will have to be settled. Will we be ready for that day? What happens next now in our text is the sudden and complete restoration of Israel. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. It says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Isn't that backwards? <laughs> Ladies are saying, yes! Those especially who've had children, yes, the pain came first, then the baby. But it's interesting. He says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. So now we understand who this she is. Zion is Jerusalem. It is quite significant that Israel's suffering in the world, oftentimes described as birth pangs throughout Scripture. This is a, this is a key word in understanding prophecy as well. That Israel's suffering in the world is going to end with a delivery. There is the short-term picture given to us in their return from Babylon. They go to Babylon. This is the, the, the near fulfillment. They go to Babylon. At some point in time, they, they, they've, they've been there over so, so many years. So now they come back. It's the remnant that comes back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, in essence, gives birth to those who return wasn't really a day, but it's like a day, you know. They just came back and all of a sudden they're back in the land. Now, the long-term picture is the second coming leading to the eternal state. So the second coming of Christ leading, of course, to the new heaven and new earth and to the new Jerusalem. But there is something else. And there is something also to be said concerning Israel's return to the land after their destruction by the Romans back in A.D. 70. When would that have been? 
That would have been on May the 14th, 1948. Because Israel once again became a nation on that day. And by the way, interestingly enough, it became a nation in one day. It became a nation in one day by God's hand and by God's promise. And just as Isaiah said it would happen, trouble came a day after they were born. Remember the pain? They, they were born first and then the pain? May the 15th, 1948, one day later, the Arab nations declared war upon Israel and vowed that they would be driven into the sea. But may I ask you a question? Did it happen? They tried in, the, in, the, tried in 1948, they tried in 1954, they tried in 1967, and in between there are a few other times too. They tried in, in 1973, and they keep trying even today. And there's a madman in control of one of the larger nations uh, in the Middle East, in Iran, a madman, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Can you say that three times? Fast. Who is vowing that they will have nuclear power. They're not listening to anybody who says to them, you can't do this because you have evil intentions. They're doing it. They're going to do it. They want to do it. And the whole purpose behind it is to destroy Israel and the Jewish people. I'm not giving you a fairy tale scenario. I'm not giving you some script from a, a, a novel. A, this is real life. And if you were to study how Israel survived in 1948, in 1954, in 1967, and 1973, but it does give indication of God's love for and His desire toward His chosen people. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. First time we see this. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Did you see that? It's about the Jewish people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Psalm 33 verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He has chosen as His own inheritance. Primarily that is speaking of Israel. Ultimately it is speaking of all who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of Mashiach, of Messiah, Jesus. Now, the next passage 
deals with the fact that God doesn't start a work that He doesn't intend to finish. So let's look at verses 9 through 11 of Isaiah 66 now. Verses 9 through 11. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause delivery, shut up the womb? What does he say? If I start something, I'm going to finish it. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. I I can tell you right now, stop there and just think. I've been talking about this, this jointedness in the church. That there are those who are not quote-unquote evangelical or quote-unquote Bible believers in a sense. What the Bible has taught us here and in Calvary chapels generally speaking is that we are to love the Jewish people and we are to serve them and to pray for them and to encourage them and to bless them. Those who bless them shall be blessed. Those who curse them shall be cursed. We're told in the Psalms, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are to love God's people. Now, It says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. There are people in the church today, there are various denominations, I'm going to go into the list, that don't like Israel, they don't like the Jewish people, for whatever reason. There are a few reasons. And they would rather support terrorists who are going around killing Jews by sending bombs into Uh, cities that are just, you know, with families wanting to exist. And they would much rather go and support these terrorists than, than love Israel. Tells me there's a problem here. Because it all comes down to do you believe what God says about His people. So it says, Rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for, uh, for joy with her, all you who mourn for her that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. Now, it is really necessary for us to be patient with the Lord until He is ready to finish what He has begun. The important thing to note is that God will finish what He starts. People get anxious because they want to see things fall into place just as they would like it and act as if they can't wait for the Lord to move on their behalf according to His timing. They can't wait for that. It's got to be now. It's like the very plea for patience that some people give before the Lord. Dear God, give me patience and give it to me now. Right? Right? Have any of you ever prayed that prayer? Don't raise your hands. I think we all have. God, I need patience right now. Please give it to me now. Can't you be patient? Luke chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. 
Jesus talks about anxieties. What's one of the major causes of heart attacks today? Heart problems today. Anxieties. And do not seek, he says, what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't take thought on what uh, you think you need. It's funny that a lot of times the things that we think we need are only just the things that we want. And Jesus said, I give you, I'll give you everything you need. Whatever you want, you get it yourself. But don't say, oh, thank you, Lord, for that, you know, 73-inch TV. What are you, blind? Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, Paul says. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Philippians 1, 6. And this is the key verse here. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who begins the work, completes the work. And so all God's people are called upon to share in Jerusalem's joy. The time of restoration and triumph, the time of freedom and exoneration has now come for Jerusalem. And so those of us who care about what happens to Jerusalem will one day be happy with what Jesus will do. Therefore we will be satisfied and will all be blessed. There's still a lot of things that have to happen before that happens. And if I should say, unfortunately, it's going to affect a lot of Jewish people during the time of the tribulation. For we know that if we read the scriptures properly and rightly, that many of them will perish because of the Antichrist. So we want to pray for them and commit them into God's loving hand that they not only will be saved but that they will indeed know their Savior, Yeshua, before all of these things happen. It's not that idea that says, oh listen, you know, God loves His people, He'll take care of them. You don't need to, you don't need to evangelize them, you don't need to tell them about Jesus. No, you do. Paul did. Paul was a Jew. He needed Jesus and Jesus was the one who, who, who witnessed to him. Peter was a Jew. So, by the way, this very rejoicing what the Lord is doing for Jerusalem and Israel may oftentimes be what makes the world uncomfortable and makes us the target of that mocking we were talking about earlier. When the world calls us fanatics. Fanatics! For simply believing every word and promise and prophecy that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're fanatics. I like the term that I received back 30 some years ago. Jesus freak. I like that. Jesus freak. Yeah. I'm a freak for Jesus. Yeah, I don't care what people think. 
But that's what happens. So when the world calls us fanatics, then we must be nearing that point of passion and enthusiasm that honors and blesses the Lord. So don't shrink from the mocking. Tell them thanks. Because I'm on the right track. My passion, my heart is for Jesus Christ. Now, verses 12 and 13. I'm going to move on a little, little quick here, so kind of stay up with me. Verses 12 and 13. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. And so not only is Jerusalem and the children of Israel being blessed by God's peace, by God's shalom, it is the glory of the Gentiles as well, like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides, shall you be carried and be dandled on her knees as one whom his, uh, as, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Isaiah is almost ready to bring his grand vision now to a close by drawing out its full implications. But first he has some comforting words for the faithful within Israel. For them, the prospect of Jerusalem's coming destruction by God was exceedingly painful. They could not view it with the composure and the calmness of which others might be capable His first word for them picks up and confirms all that has been said about the future city of God in preceding chapters. So the new Jerusalem will be everything that the old failed to be. The new Jerusalem will be truly a city of peace, rich to overflowing with the blessings of God. And those who grieve for the old will be comforted in the new. The Lord speaks with the utmost tenderness to His faithful servants. No one can comfort like a mother. I think we'd all agree. No one can comfort like a mother. And God will bring that kind of comfort to His people. Now, guys, I don't know that we can comfort like a mother can comfort. But because God is God, He can. See, take for example this. When the Lord speaks about pity, He compares Himself to their father. Notice in Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. So we think, well, yeah, what guys can pity? So He uses that idea of a father who pities his children. But when He speaks about comfort, He selects the mother. Now, Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus himself says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, a hen, which is the mother of these little chicks, But it says, but you weren't willing. But that's the comfort. And and he uses that same analogy here of the mother who can comfort. Men can pity, but mothers can comfort. Does that make God a mother, a woman? Let's not go that far. God's very clear what he is, who he is. I was driving the other day, we're in a car, driving and 
and and I saw this sticker on the back of a a woman's car. It said, Goddess bless America. For one moment, God forgive me. For one brief moment, I had wished I had a good size, you know. What just, but it, you know, it passed, honestly. It just, I had to just calm myself. <laughs> Let's go on. When you see this, verse 14, your heart shall rejoice. And your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. So the same thing. His people, true believers will be blessed. The wicked will be judged. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Remember this one thought in the book of Galatians. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, so shall he also reap. If he soweth to the flesh, he reaps the flesh. So, he comes like a whirlwind. It's judgment. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and, and again, I... I want to be careful in saying that a lot of the things that we've been seeing in our own country recently, weather uh, patterns that are not uh, seasonable, things that are happening in the Midwest, the floods, all of these things, we ought not to, to put it aside as, as Mother Nature. We ought not to put it aside as saying, well, it's, it's just the way things are or whatever. There's a lot of mention of whirlwind in Scripture. A lot of mention of, of, of things, storms, approaching storms, things that are done because God is doing a couple of things. Number one, He's trying to wake up His people. Number two, He's trying to wake up a nation. And number three, if I said a couple of things, let me add one more. He may be also judging for our uh, going against his people. How many times have we in our own country come up with things to tell Israel what to do and every time that is done, you know, to get out of Gaza, to get out of, you know, certain settlements, something happens here, something big, something to think about, Okay. Not writing this in stone, I'm just telling you, it's something to think about. <clears throat> Behold, the Lord will come with a fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh. Fire and the sword. The sword of what? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Which people today are saying, well, I don't really know if that's really true or not. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. That is scary. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in their midst. In other words, going about it the wrong way. Eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouth. 
shall be consumed together, says the Lord. So when the Messiah returns in glory and triumph, for some it will be a great blessing, and for others it is nothing but judgment. When Jesus returns in glory and triumph, He will also see through those who practice that empty religion. They shall be consumed together, it says. It's interesting that the judgment that begins in the house of God has its significance not simply in itself, but in what it points to. It is a sign of the final judgment to come, putting the whole world on notice. And this is what I was trying to say a little earlier. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Peter nails it here when he says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So let us not grow weary, folks, in doing good as unto the Lord. Because there is re- there's great reward in that. But judgment first begins in the house of God. But notice, there will be great blessing for those who believe and those who don't believe. Only judgment. I think that's pretty clear. Let's go on. Verse 18. For I know their thoughts, or I, sh- I should say, for I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations. To Tarshish and the pool and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. So all who are guilty of evil works and thoughts will also suffer the terrifying judgment of God. That's verse 18. These allowed their thoughts and their imaginations to dwell on the immoral, on the lawless, and the violent, instead of focusing their minds on things that are true, that are honest, that are just, that are pure, that are lovely, that are good, virtuous, and praiseworthy. By allowing their thoughts to linger on the forbidden they eventually begin participating in immoral and wicked deeds. So think about the list that Paul gives us in Philippians 4 verse 8 when he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Not on the things of this world, but on the things of God. The things that are true and noble and just and pure. And then in verse 19, Isaiah makes prophetic reference to the missionary calling and work of God's people. Now, you know, if you do enough study of the book of Revelation, you realize that there's there's a group of 144,000 Jews that will 
be used by God uh, to evangelize. Uh, so this can be thought of as part of that. But, but there is this prophetic reference here in verse 19 to the missionary calling work of God's people. Certainly, God has a missionary intent for Israel, as I said, but uh, that they would be a priesthood among the nations and a light to the Gentiles. So, that, doesn't, that didn't just come up. That is something that God had established back in the time of Moses. In Exodus 19, verse 6, it says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I mean, that was a long, long time before, you know, the children of Israel were even in the land. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And then, of course, in Isaiah 42, verse 6, God says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, but notice, as a light to the Gentiles. So, now they're going to truly fulfill that calling of ministering God to all the nations. And where will they go? Those who have escaped, in other words, those of the remnant who have escaped, are going to go to Tarshish, which we can say is, well, you know, part of Europe, Spain, France, Italy, Pool and Lud, which could be Libya and modern Turkey, Tubal, which is on the northeastern side of Turkey, and Javan, or, or Javan, which is Greece. Today, when we have the privilege of sharing the gospel, let's say, with a friend, and they receive the Lord into their heart, you know, we might say that we led them to the Lord. But verse 20, if you look at it, implies that in that day, you might literally, literally be leading a person to the Lord. In other words, hey, let's go to Jesus. He's here. <laughs> you see. So today, you know, you're, you're telling people, well, I led somebody to the Lord. And, and you did. You led them to Jesus Christ and they, you came to the truth of Christ. In that day, they'll lead somebody to the Lord and bring them right to Jesus. Because he's, he's going to be reigning on this earth for a thousand years. So that's an interesting thought. And then in verse 21, there is the idea... That in that day, God will extend the priesthood beyond its previous boundaries. Well, this is ultimately fulfilled in the church. Because saints are called priests. In uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, Peter says, Coming to him as, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, notice, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, John mentions in the book of Revelation, he says in Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. So, you see, in the church, as we come to Christ, we who are believers in Christ have been made a spiritual, holy priesthood. And so what Isaiah is saying is, of course, going to be ultimately fulfilled in his people, in God's people, as going beyond just the boundaries of the Levites. The chapter closes now with the certainty of both the judgment of the Lord and his restoration of his people. It says in verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me. So notice, as they will be remaining, as they are going to continue, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. Speaking to his people. 
And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another. So that kind of continues on in the millennial kingdom, the, the, the uh, Sabbath and all. All flesh shall come to worship before me. Notice, all flesh. All flesh. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. That's kind of a, uh, turning the picture around. Remember how many people went by that road outside of Jerusalem and saw a man on a cross who they despised and who they rejected. But that man was not just a man. That was Jesus who came off the cross in a tomb, but on the third day he rose from the dead, sits now at the right hand of the Father and says, I'm coming again. When things change around, when we are in that city, what are we going to see? Notice it says, They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. Everlasting punishment. Everlasting pain. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. An abhorrence to all flesh. It's a heavy way to end a, 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 a major prophecy or a major book. So simply from verse 22, God is not finished with the Jews. If heaven is forever, so are the Jews. God's ultimate triumph is given to us here. Through the book of Isaiah, the nations have been judged and often condemned. But God's ultimate plan has been to reach the nations, seen in its fulfillment in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of, notice, every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That is God's plan. Not to wipe out a whole nation of people or a whole race of people but to reach to every nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the picture that we need to leave with from this whole book of Isaiah is that worship will be the focus in the kingdom age, the worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But again, the book ends in a, in so, a somewhat of a downer. The reason may be this simple. You have a choice to make. You can enter eternity with the Lord, or you can enter the lake of fire apart from Him. That's a tremendous choice to make. But God's heart and God's heart desire is for you to turn to Him. And He's given every opportunity for men and women to turn to Jesus Christ. For boys and girls, for young people, for old people to turn to Jesus Christ. 
Ezekiel chapter 18. We're almost done here. Ezekiel 18, verses 30 through 32 says this. And this is the Lord speaking. He says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his way, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. It, that chapter ends with these words, Therefore turn and live. Turn and live. It's very clear today. But it's not so clear in the minds of, of the atheist or of the secular humanist or of the agnostic or of the postmodern philosopher. But let me read these words of W.E. Vine, a commentator and a, a person who spent many years in the languages of the Bible. And I close with this. He says, All this brings home the folly, futility, and sinfulness of pursuing our own way, carrying out our own designs and turning after that in which God cannot take pleasure, instead of waiting upon Him, listening to His voice, and delighting in the fulfillment of His will. Through our walking with God, He fulfills and will fulfill all the promises of His Word. He responds to delighted confidence in Him by adding an Amen to His assurance. The peace of an obedient heart and a trusting spirit is that which enjoys the sunshine of His countenance and the calmness of holy communion with Him. And so... We come to the end of our study of the book of Isaiah. Shall we pray?